Well, hello again, listeners, and welcome to the far way nearby. This is episode 39, Passion, Privilege, and Peril. Today, we're going to discuss the Netflix original documentary, Team Foxcatcher. But before we get into that, we're just going to touch base and check in with one another and see how each of our weeks went. So, well, hello, princess. How are you? Hey there. I'm pretty good. How about yourself? I'm doing all right. Well, uh, this is the time of our show where we talk a little bit about the highs and lows of our weeks and I was going to ask you, uh, what has been up with you? What have you done lately? What was your favorite thing about the last week? My favorite thing about the last week was I went to go see the Gloria Stefan musical. Oh, uh, I don't know if you've heard of it. It's called Get On Your Feet. Um, uh, her younger years and when she met Emilio. Uh, it's uh, off off Broadway now. It was a Broadway show. They're traveling around the country, so we get to see oh. it. I went with a friend we actually won tickets went to a drag brunch a few weeks ago mm-hmm. so there was a drawing and I actually put my name in last minute and got picked so I won some free tickets brought a friend with me and we had a great time excellent now was this the same friend that has the birthday on the same day no this is actually a different friend that I went with ah uh, okay uh, was there anything that went on this last week that maybe just got you in a mood that uh, you, you wanted to get over with? Um, the week in general, it was just very busy and hectic. Um, work's been pretty crazy, busy, and um, I picked up a part-time job. So that's just been work, 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 work for me. Uh, so the trust fund hasn't kicked in yet. No, it has not. <laughs> I'm, I'm waiting. I'm waiting. That's the thing about after you've climbed down from that ivory tower, they, they kind of said that you had to make a living on your own there. Yes, they cut the purse strings. Oh, Very God. disheartening. Once you play in the key again, let me know, because I I wouldn't <laughs> mind stepping up there for a little while. <laughs> oh, I bet. I bet. <laughs> For those of you who listen to my other show, Surely You Jest, you'll know that Hubby and I just got back from a road trip, and this past week has been a little ups and downs, of course, certainly. This is the time of year that there are no more holidays to be had, and people are planning out their vacation time and looking at the calendar and saying, oh, there's no more long weekends? What? Oh, you mean the fun thing I have to look forward to is getting out of work early for a doctor's appointment? Oh, come on. (laughs) And uh, certainly that is what I have going on. I have um, an appointment with my specialist next week. I have this um, little ailment that's left over from childhood that rears its ugly head every now and then. I have um, a trick ear, I guess I'd say. And so I have to go see my specialist. When you only get like an hour excused off from work to go to your appointment and come back, it's kind of pointless, especially if you have to cross town and park and whatever. So I just made it a half day. (laughs) (laughs) I don't blame you. That would definitely make sense. Certainly by the time you've parked and you've gotten into your appointment, if you had any trouble finding a space, sometimes you just don't want to go back to work. Sometimes the day's just done. Absolutely. For the most part, I have just been looking for things to look forward to. And of course, with there being no holidays coming up, I'm just thinking about what we'll be doing in the warmer months. And Five years in to living in this house, we've been looking at seed catalogs and planting. Mm-hmm. We are going to do our best to break our record and actually start doing some landscaping this year, fingers crossed. But of course, that's still probably more than a month away. So I can't believe it's been five years already. I know. I remember when you first moved in there and you had the housewarming didn't you have an olive tree we did have a a rather entangled garden that the 
prior so, owners left us in the backyard. I so, remember that. <laughs> yeah, so I could understand why you might think we might have had an olive tree. There could have been one somewhere in that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Hubby finally got the neighbor to help us out the other year. And we have an older gentleman that lives across the street who has one of those great tractors that has all the attachments. Oh, that's wonderful. And they tilled it under for us. But of course, we haven't done anything with it just yet. Well, that's okay. Better to not do anything with it than leave it a tangled mess. That's true. <laughs> Princess, we have a special guest in our midst. Are you ready to just uh, have a little cup yes. of and while away the hour? Absolutely. Hello, special guest. We have Miss Brenda Boo. Welcome, Brenda. Ooh, Brenda Boo. Hello. <clears throat> Thank you for having me. How are you all doing? Wonderful. I'm doing well. And of course, our listeners will know Brenda from Life on the Shit List or Lotzel, as it's also known. Classy name, right? Yeah. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> See, I picked that name at a particularly low point in my life. And I remember I just tweeted out uh, life on the shit list because that's the way I was feeling. And somebody says, that's the name of a podcast. And I went, <laughs> it works. It's so much catchier than conversations from a break room. No. <laughs> <laughs> So, Brenda, you uh, you and I uh, chatted it up a little while ago, and we were talking about some of the things that we've been watching lately, and we decided on a movie to watch together. Now, if you will, please indulge the listeners. What is it that we'll be talking about today? Okay, well, this is a documentary called Team Foxcatcher. It is based on a true story. It's a documentary, obviously. It is the central figure of it is part of the DuPont family. And the DuPont family is very well known. It's one of the richest families in these these United States. <laughs> They're a famous French family. Um, it involves athletes. So this is a story about uh, John DuPont who murders one of his best friends, Dave Schultz who was the 1984 gold medal winner in wrestling. And it tells the story of how um, these two even were in each other's worlds um, leading up to the actual murder. When Brenda mentioned that she had seen this movie, it seemed rather interesting to me because this is a story that's been in the news recently because there was a movie a couple of years ago done about the story of the, the murderer, uh, Mr. John DuPont, and of course, as Brenda was saying, this is somebody who had money. He invested in wrestling, in athletes. He passed away a few years ago while serving his sentence in jail. I feel that this documentary was made to sort of cash in, as it were, on the, the popularity of the, the storyline having surfaced in, in the headlines. I think it's a very interesting character study because as you watch and you see all this footage of of John in the documentary where it's really not, it's kind of like the interim between things that they're filming, mm -hmm. you really see the kind of mental illness that's happening with this guy. So to me, it felt like if they did make that movie, it felt more like a good way to to expose like money doesn't bring you happiness, right? I guess that's one way of putting it. There's all kinds of problems, no matter whether you're in, you know. What was your initial impression of the movie? I had read about and seen some documentaries in the past about John DuPont and this uh, story. So I was pretty interested in it. But um, I, you know, I found it kind of sad overall. It was just like Brenda was saying, you know, the, the mental illness seems apparent. It's kind of sad the way, and obviously, he's a murderer, and we're not supposed to have sympathy for murderers. You know, when it talks about his upbringing and the kind of like the the distance that the money and the power brought for him to his connection with like the outside world, and then also the way that it seemed that you know people kind of took advantage and looked the other way because if this was just an ordinary person, you know, people I feel that people would have, you know, stepped in long before this happened. This was something that I think was preventable, you know, looking back. And of course, hindsight is twenty twenty. 
Um, and I wasn't there, I wasn't in the situation, but, you know, from, from just the get go, from his demeanor, from the escalating behaviors that I'm sure we'll get into, it seemed very apparent that something was not right here. And, uh, it just, it's just a tragic kind of story to me. It seemed, it seemed very sad that, you know, people stuck in there, whether it was for the money or because they thought that they could help him. Uh, I'm not really sure I wasn't there, but that was my initial impression of, of it overall. What I found interesting about this film was, you know, of course, it does establish those themes that just because somebody has money doesn't mean that they are necessarily better off. One of the things that was mentioned in this is that there was a massage therapist on the property there who you know probably worked with all the athletes but just like a bartender you know you hear interesting stories while you're doing your job and at some point in time the massage therapist was told by Mr. DuPont that he had a very isolated childhood that he had meals in his bedroom up until the point where he was 13 and he felt that he practically needed an appointment to see his father at any given time. So times mostly refused that appointment too. This is just a, a prime example of how you could have, you know, the potential, you have the resources, but the outcome is, is what the focus of this is. And, you know, it, at its core, John Tupont may not have been very different than anyone like Elon Musk. You know, this is somebody who actually achieved a PhD in his time. So you can very easily assume, oh, well, this person's educated. You know, they've got everything laid out for them. They've got money. There's certainly nothing they shouldn't be able to accomplish. Well, this seems like it might be a good time to tell you just a, a little bit of background about the DuPont family, if you don't mind. This very famous family immigrated from France. Part of that family, one side of it was part of the Huguenot family. I'm sure you've heard that name. They took that money and started their own gunpowder mill. It grew into the one of the large into the largest gunpowder mill in the world. And up until the 1960s, the family owned most of the stock in that, right? They controlled it. Mm -hmm. And at one time, the DuPont family employed 10% of the entire population of Delaware in their, for their companies. Uh, in 2016, the family fortune was $14.3 billion. And this fortune mm -hmm. is uh, shared by like 3,500 heirs, right, at this time. So the way they kept all this money in amongst their heirs is that up until the 19th century, the DuPonts had carefully arranged marriages through their cousins. And the reason I thought this was a good time to bring that up is that, uh, you know, you get that much inbreeding, there's going to be some misfires in the old synopsis. And I wonder <laughs> if uh, <laughs> mom was a victim of that or not. Um, you touched on his father. His father is William DuPont Jr. He was a businessman, a banker, and he was heavily involved in the sport of thoroughbred horses, which they touched on. All this took place on the Sitter Hall Farm. That's where they lived. It was an 800-acre farm. And it seems to me, in my experience, anything that has a name like the farm or the compound, bad shit's going to happen. <laughs> the farm. Good point. <laughs> Just to bring it back to 80s sitcom, you know, trivia there, Brenda. There's a scene in Cheers where they're all talking about this movie they watched. And, uh, I think it was Kirstie Alley's character said, you know, they kept telling people not to go in the barn. And what was the name of that movie? Don't go in the barn. Uh -huh. <laughs> well, the last thing I want to say about the DuPont family is that uh, John DuPont is not the only infamous member See, in 2009, Robert H. Richards IV was convicted of raping his three-year-old daughter. Mm. So, mm. which is oh my gosh. a whole new level of sick. But oh again, that's a lot of cousins marrying cousins. Yeah, I th I think that the you know it would be safe to say that the the Dupont family is as close as we get to having uh, a royal family here in these United States. Well, they they had a list of names when I was looking it up on the old Wikipedia that the family was associated with and they were all other 
names of very rich families like Rockefeller and of course now they all escape me. Astor I think was another one. So it's all these rich people just kind of joining forces to keep all their monies with mm -hmm. each other. And what I found interesting, because I was doing a little bit of the same reading that you were doing, because this, this sort of story of intrigue just kind of, you know, wet your whistle to want to be able to find out uh, what set this all up for failure. One of the things I read was that John DuPont's father lived on the property that had once been part of President James Madison's estate. Wow. And by the time that gentleman's sister who was the heir to the estate she was the oldest child by the time she passed on in i want to say the 70s or 80s the estate was just so enormous that none of the other descendants wanted to take responsibility for it so instead they turned it over the, to the state and it became a park yeah i read that too they're they're instrumental in in a lot of different natural areas that are available to the public. I mean, it, you can't say that they haven't done some good with their money, but you know, when you have a family that's got that much wealth and that much influence, when a person like John comes along, I mean, we don't know, maybe he was goofy from the get go. And this father is just like, yeah, keep that descent, you know, keep that weird kid away from me. Cause <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> fathers are, it's just like, mm. Like their egos are so big, they can't believe that they've got maybe this special child who, I don't know if it was all because he was isolated. There, when you would see him in those that footage where he wasn't talking, you could mm. see the wheels turning in his head. Like, what do I say now? What do I say now? And it's just like, ooh, was that <laughs> spending so much time alone with your mother, or what is that about? I mean. He seemed kind of autistic, too. What I found interesting about this documentary also was that while you knew going into it that there was a crime that had been committed, because that's you know part of the description of the movie, is that the bulk of the film, and I want to say about half of this documentary, is spent exploring the people whose lives were affected. They wanted to put a face to the crime so that you could identify with those who experienced the loss. I like that. So many of the documentaries and shootings and everything's like put all their attention on the person who did it rather than the actual the victims. And can I say that, um, you know, with the recent shooting in Florida, somebody said there was a, a kid there that actually had filmed all these poor kids that had gotten killed and, and how awful they thought that was. And part of me is like, maybe this needs to be shown so it can like put faces on all these victims and see the ugly mess that gun control needs to, it needs to be part of the discussion. Anyway, I went off on a little tyrant, but, but I mean like when you only look at the killer, it's easy to forget about these people, right? They just become a name. Right. Right. I mean, we, we certainly have no shortage of horrible on television and that of course includes the commercials that we see for abused animals. Oh. You know, the, the purpose of that is to, opposed to encourage you to donate to these causes that's going to prevent this. Of course, going back a couple of generations, we had the terrible footage that was made from the concentration camps that were liberated by uh, American soldiers. And of course, that's not something that is shown in classrooms these days that I'm aware of. But certainly, if there's a lesson that needs to be learned, sometimes you just have to see the grim reality to understand this actually affects people. They spend a fair amount of time allowing you to become familiar with the people that had been affected by this crime. And I was spending part of the film watching it, wondering, when are we going to get to the crime? And of course, we're so used to stories that, you know, something is mysterious they're trying to figure out uh you know what happened but of course we know that he's the whack job so it was just a ticking time bomb just his his demeanor in the footage seemed awkward and odd and the way that he was obsessed with the wrestling and i i found it interesting how because of his money and his clout that like they'd even hold you know, fake events for oh, yeah. him so that he could win, so that he would feel, you know, 
special. And I'm just like, this is so, I'm watching it thinking, this is so twisted. This is so demented that like this grown man, this man, what was he in his fifties or sixties? Mm-hmm. I don't even know, you know, needs to be like placated and coddled. And they were talking about how they had to take turns, like watching him. And I'm just, I'm like, does nobody see anything wrong with this? Mm-mm. That was sad. I felt embarrassed for him, right? Yes, yes. It, it's a notch above the kid who's at another kid's birthday party and insists that because it's a birthday cake, the candles have to be relit for them to blow it out, too. Well, I've definitely been to like children's birthdays where if they have siblings, you know, you have to bring a present for for the kid whose birthday it is, and then you have to bring a present for the other kid so the other kid doesn't feel left out. Um, I don't know. This might be an age thing too, you know, where like now it's like everybody, you know, has to feel included and and special too. Talking about you know just kind of weird behavior. Did you guys catch when they were talking about how? One day, he was driving his car. He drove his car straight into the, into the pond. Oh, yes, that too. Yep. And then the and second then- day, he got a he had gotten a rental, and he had a he had a high ranking Russian official in the back seat of the car, and he drove into the same pond. What the fuck? Yep. Yep. At that point, I would think, you know, there, there's something just not right about this guy. Maybe we shouldn't hang out with him. Maybe we should keep our distance. He might try to kill us. No. <laughs> you know, that might be your warning sign there. Right. Well, you have to wonder, I mean, if you were to put yourself in the position of the people that the, the filmmaker is trying to get you to identify with the athletes and their families, mm-hmm. I would think that certainly they uh, they were in the spotlight and they were blinded by the potential of fame because this this rich eccentric person who was offering to simplify their lives by providing them with home and possibly food even paying their expenses and right. all they had to do would show up to class and to work on their their craft their their sport yeah certainly that seems to be a unique opportunity but if the boss is got a bloody nose because he's snorting coke every day Uh i'm sorry i'm not gonna come and move into your circus motel right right well the thing that i found interesting too was um the fact that the cop he was friends with the police and i think he was even like an honorary member of the police force because they could hunt on his farm and they had special privileges because of knowing him so even if you know, somebody did suspect something or feel that maybe something wasn't quite right. Like I remember them talking about him thinking that somebody was like tunneling through his wall and they'd come in and they'd check it out and, and legitimize this behavior of his. So even if somebody did suspect something or feel that something was going on and went to the police about it, they tended to look the other way because they were also receiving privileges by, by just knowing him and being friends with him does seem like a just like a pot getting ready to boil over when you look at the evidence leading up to it doesn't it absolutely yeah they paid him a dollar a year to be a volunteer like a volunteer cop (laughs) a reserve officer Mm -hmm. and i guess just to provide a little background on this this vast estate that we've been talking about i look it's in a suburb about 25 miles away from philadelphia so I'm sure, you know, back in the 60s and 70s and whatever, when it was in the heyday, that that was probably considered a convenient drive out into the country from the city. But nowadays, it's very much the growing suburbs. And, you know, this guy had so much money that basically the local law enforcement were in his pocket. They talked about the fact that they were wearing bulletproof vests that he had provided to them because it was a small town. They couldn't afford those luxuries unless he paid for it. One of his biggest defenders was the person that he ended up murdering, Dave Schultz. Exactly. And then there was a third person that was really the, the, it turned out to be like a, almost like a romantic triangle, only it was just friendships. And there was this, uh, Bulgarian name what, Valentin. So oh was, yes, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. there was the three of them. So Dave Schultz was kind of like the liaison between 
John and the rest of the wrestlers. Dave is always the one coming up and it's like, oh, you know, D- D- John's okay, you know, and he would placate mm-hmm. him, right, and and say he's okay, and people would get weirded out, but he would always just kind of smooth things over because he said he liked John. He wanted to help him. He genuinely had affection towards him. Right. I remember one of the wrestlers was saying that, like, if there was anything that people didn't the they didn't feel comfortable going to John directly about they'd go through Dave because he was the only one that could really talk to him and and smooth things over if John was really upset about something right and then it almost seemed like once Valentine came on the scene John's like Dave lost his shine right wanted he wanted Val- Valentine to be friends well it turns out Dave and Valentine were best buddies they had children that would play together. And then John just got jealous is what yeah. it's like. And then, of course, things took a whole other turn. Valentine is living there, uh, I guess, for lack of a better term, the compound. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it is. That, that's exactly. We have this, this eccentric descendant of French people who's got all this money. And suddenly he has the opportunity to do what he wants because... Growing up, even though he had money, his parents wouldn't let him do what he wanted. And they, they, it actually was mentioned in the documentary that his interest in wrestling at a younger age was kind of turned away. His parents said that that's, you know, that's that's not something that our people do. You know, it's it's kind of primitive. Mm-hmm. So we we don't want him to do this. And so he uses his money. To basically to have his boys' toys, although it's real people in this case, he even gets it in his mind that he is not of French descent, despite his very prominently French name. That's right. <laughs> he has concocted this idea that because he's kind of in love with the sport and he's got his star athlete who happens to be Bulgarian, that now he's Bulgarian. Now I have to ask you, DJ. Mm-hmm. I felt like uh, the another reason why they discouraged him to go into wrestling because a lot of people see wrestling as somewhat of a homoerotic activity. Hmm. And I felt like he was in love with these guys. Mm. Mm-hmm. I felt like he was a gay man. What did you think? It's interesting that you mentioned that because there are a fair number of guys that their their first quote-unquote homoerotic experiences are through sports and school and certainly it gave me a tingle when i was the same age in high school and i was told to roll around on the floor with these other guys who may or may not be attractive (laughs) i think that you bring up a fair point especially if you come from any sort of family of influence they're going to want you to be all prim and proper and buy the book and of course those are the family that have something to hide. I mean, all you have to do is look at the Kennedys and their daughter, Rosemary, to know that the the folks with money, you know, just try to to keep it quiet. Right. What I think is interesting about that, too, is was that in uh, 1988, there was a lawsuit that he had made improper sexual advances towards a coach, a male coach, uh, that was settled out of court. So maybe there is, you know, something to that. Well, they never mention any interest in any women. And as you know, men have, you know, they're not just going to ignore their sexuality entirely. You know, this concept of like people going to going to their death beds as virgins because some Mm. man has never gone out with a woman (laughs) may not be a virgin (laughs) done anything with a woman yeah i mean he was briefly married uh, for about 10 months oh i missed that well and i find it convenient that this fact was omitted from the documentary now (laughs) right in, in the end credits they tell you that there was a lawsuit between the widow of the athlete Dave Schultz mm-hmm. and Mr. DuPont, who is now, of course, incarcerated. But of course, they they wouldn't reveal, you know, the the sum. So sure. I'm sure it was a good chunk of money. I'm sure that the fact that he was married had to be swept under the carpet because there was, you know, more than likely 
some settlement. Right. I too, Micah, looked up Mr. DuPont's past history after seeing this, and you can actually Google you know, the term John DuPont's ex-wife, and you can find a few articles. This this documentary conveniently glosses over the fact that before all these athletes started moving into that compound there, his wife of maybe just under a year left him. And it wasn't just because he left the seat up. It's because he tried to push her out of a moving car. He held her at knife point. And then the, you know, the piece de resistance was when he started telling her he thought she was a Russian spy and would point a gun at her. Yeah, he's paranoid. Remember he's talking about he thought Dave was, Dave Schultz was in the wall somehow? That he had, um, what was all this paranoia? Oh, he thought there was a, Dave had, dug a series of uh, tunnels underneath the grounds to get into the house. So they started, uh, so he hired a security team. The security team started digging holes in the yards. Oh, he was filming the fields, remember? He studied the hours and hours of footage of just yeah, and then they were saying how he would, like, point out things and say, oh, don't you see that? And then the people that would go along with it and say, yeah, yeah, I see that, even if they didn't really say anything, he'd be like, oh, no, there's nothing there, you know, just kind of playing mind games with people. Mm-hmm. And they had a weighing the walls of the of the big house, too, mm-hmm. to prove that there was nobody in there. And that's when he started staying up all night, doing mm-hmm. cocaine, and he really started getting paranoid and thinking that, um, and really focusing in on the fact that Dave was the one that was keeping him away from Valentine. We progressed about halfway through the documentary to learning about all the people whose lives were affected. You know, we basically, the whole thing starts off with a beautiful drive down this country road. And then you realize that it's the entrance to this vast estate. They, they use all sorts of home movies to paint the picture of what life was like on this this farm in fact there's this uh very endearing home movie where the now widow of the athlete david schultz is out in the backyard on a day where they've had a record snowfall and her daughter is saying mommy mommy put the camera on me and she slides down the slide and lands in the the snow and makes a snow angel but then that's when the tables turn and you start seeing that things have come unhinged. And it's just at that point in the movie where they start hinting at he was a little bit, Mr. DuPont was a little bit more than just rich and eccentric, that there was something not going right upstairs. And I don't know I, if you caught on to this either, you Brenda or Micah, but it seemed like they were hesitant to say that he was using drugs. Didn't you get that impression? Yes, I did. I think, I feel like they mentioned it, but it it wasn't heavily discussed. And then that leads you to wonder how much of this was his mental illness exacerbated by drug use. It seems to me like he was a bipolar, with paranoid bipolar person, mm-hmm. and that only the drugs exacerbated it. Mm-hmm. What did you think about when he started uh, dictating what colors people could uh, wear? Like, no black shirts, no oh. black that was that was also another point where i'm like maybe you know you think about separating yourself from the guy when he's kicking off you know it's so extreme that he's kicking off the black players from the team because the color black is just bad and you can't have the color black around and people are talking to him saying you can't do that and he's like there's nothing to do with their race it's just i can't have black around Mm -hmm. and you know at that point it's like there's something wrong here yeah they had a lot of signs Mm-hmm. A lot of signs, mm-hmm. and I do feel like it has everything to do with this acceptance of the eccentric millionaire. Mm-hmm. And you just, you know, we're getting what we want from him. Yeah. And then, wh- what was the name of the guy there right before things really fell apart? He came and he ordered him to move off the property. Wasn't his name Dan? Yeah, that was the guy that had the U-Haul dropped off at his place as a subtle hint. Yeah, and then mm-hmm. when he didn't move right away. John showed up with a gun and pointed at him and said, don't you fuck with me. Fuck with me. You know, you're not going to, you know, I'll kill you or whatever. He gets him to drop the gun. Then he still doesn't leave. I don't know why this guy isn't packing up his shit as leaving. Immediately the house door gets set on fire. For some reason, this guy falls somewhere in between. He's not Dave and he's not Valentine. But he's there on the compound, and I 
think that he was single so he kind of stood out because he didn't have uh, you know a girlfriend or a wife or any mm-hmm. children maybe dupont saw him as competition mm-hmm. could have been could have been who knows i don't Probably. i don't know why his focus um you know suddenly turned to that but it it almost seemed i i got the sense that he was one of the few um people left at that time that was you know still kind of hanging on and hanging out and um maybe he wasn't quite up there but he was close enough to the top and it just seemed like a almost like a domino effect as he gets as john gets you know more and more paranoid it just is escalating up the chain you know i would be surprised if someone did a little bit of digging if that was the guy who had the most to lose from the arrangement because mm, you know, mm-hmm. as we were saying uh dupont paid for their expenses and he just told them to show up so this guy probably had bills out the wazoo and he's the one who had the dark sports car and was told that he needed to get rid of it mm-hmm. well the day that dave actually got shot there was another guy in the car and they just drove down there and very quickly he put his hand out the window, shot him. And the guy who was in the car with very quickly got seatbelt off and ran away. <laughs> Could I you think being that guy that's just in the car watching. I think that was a security. Was it a security? Guy? I think it was um, John's uh, b- bodyguard or something like that is what I had read. Okay. Oh, otherwise known as the guy who is taking the paycheck and looking the other way. Yes, yes, but I I think they they interviewed him briefly and you know, he said, "What what are you doing, John? Like what is going on here?" And I don't blame him for running away cuz who knows oh, we're going to turn that gun on next. Oh shit. <laughs> talk about the standoff. Are we getting to that point in the story where David is bled to death basically <laughs> or his heart stopped or something and then there's a standoff with the cops? Yeah, well, I got, you know, because they interviewed, they were interviewing his wife, and um, I I did get a little teary-eyed when she was talking about, you know, being there as he takes his last breaths. I can't imagine what that must have been like, such a such a shock and so much emotion uh, in that moment. Like, that's just heartbreaking. She uh, tries to paint a picture. She tries to pull you into the moment and tell you that as she's watching him die, He's reverting to some of his training as an athlete. He's Mm -hmm. doing this breathing that she says she's only seen him do when he's focusing on his workout. Mm -hmm. Well, you can really see the the privileges this guy got when they were doing the standoff. For one thing, it was 50 hours. And the guy says, this is what killed me. They have an audio of him talking to one of the policemen. He says, I have some diplomatic papers I need to go over and I can't talk right now. What the fuck is that all about? <laughs> you know, it's like they've called the Vatican and <laughs> an appointment. Mm-hmm. He says, I'm not going to talk to you anymore. I'm going to go to sleep. And he's like, okay, see you tomorrow. Right. <laughs> fuck. You know, and then the, the police officer has like a press conference. And one of the uh, people from the, the press asks the policeman, I mean, I'm assuming it's the chief of police. They ask him, why was he allowed to go to sleep? And he really didn't have a good answer for that. He's like, I wish I could tell you. (laughs) Anybody else that said, okay, I'm going to go to sleep. They said, fine, go to sleep. And then they would have gotten their little ass in there and they would have knocked him on the shoulder and said, wakey, wakey, time to go to jail. Or they would have just shot him in bed. (laughs) I mean, the amount of privilege this guy had, if this had been any other run-of-the-mill ding-dong doing this mm-hmm. he would have been taken out he would right. have been dead right well it never one of the things too when i was watching it was previous to him him actually shooting dave was when he showed up at dave's house with a gun and not to say by any means that you know this was excusable you know he dave had children and a wife and if some lunatic i don't care how much he's paying me is you know coming to my house with a gun we're leaving that night yeah they could have left and then dave said 
let's just get through and get to the the Olympics and then we'll move to California. Which, and you know, his wife, I think she did touch on that saying that, you know, he was older and it was probably his last shot. And I mean, I, I, you know, I, I don't mean to blame the victim in any way. It's just one of those things where it's like, if, if you could have had a crystal ball and known what was coming, I just, I think that it, it definitely could have been prevented. Don't you think they thought John of a, like a child and you can control a child? Right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. As I say, if there are any themes to be brought out from this story, of course, money and privilege is not always opportunity. You know, some people squander their resources and certainly it's a terrible shame when somebody who has such vast resources loses sight of that because Here's somebody who had the potential and did for a time help these athletes that may not have had these opportunities, but that all comes crashing down. But you have to wonder too, I mean, this man was part of a vast family that was well to do. They had the resources that, you know, if maybe an aunt or an uncle saw that something was going wrong Surely there's another member of the Vastapont family that could have said, oh, sorry, you're going to go back to rehab. No, no, no. Well, that's another good point that you bring up is through this this documentary, not to say that it wasn't there, but it doesn't mention any family members being around or anything like that. It's It's all this like makeshift family that he's almost bought in a way, whether or not, you know, they genuinely did end up caring for him um everybody's there for a reason you know everybody's there they're not there because they're family or because he's not providing them with anything if if that was to go away i feel that the people would have gone away you know everything was very temporary yeah they mentioned that once his mother passed away that things that's when things kind of went awry Plus, don't you feel like he was kind of the, one of the black sheep of the family? They're like, give the little boy an allowance, let him go play, keep him busy. Just, you know, I don't want anything to do with him. Yeah, yeah. And then that's the other thing, too, is that once he was tried for the murder, I, I know that they mentioned kind of people fractioning off into sides and Valentin stuck by his side. It sounded like, um, and I know that he was named an heir. Okay, now this guy is safely behind bars. So you know, let's see what else we can get from him. Well, he probably didn't get that money till he passed away, right? Mm. Right. Something else that was interesting was the fact that, of course, it's many years later now. I mean, it's like fifteen years after the murder, and this documentary even though it uses a fair amount of home videos, you get to see his widow in present day and she's had all this time to deal with those demons. So she she's collected when she walks through the areas that were part of the property there. She takes you to the house where they used to live and she tells you that this used to be my kid's nursery and she walks around the grounds. But then... You get to see the kids grown up now. And, then they- and can I just side note on that? The son, I would not kick out of bed if for eating crackers, okay? Oh, he was hot. <laughs> His son was hot. Yes. Oh, man. Yes, he was. Good looking kid. Mm. So, you know, we, we get to see the kids grown up now. And they've had all these years they've been without their father. And then... Does anybody remember what happened when they started interviewing the daughter? She sounded like she really had some sympathy for John. Yeah, she did. Mm-hmm. Because she said everybody, once John died in prison, she she was sad because everybody was so happy he was dead. And her father had people mourning after him, but nobody mourned for John. And she thought that was sad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know that she was the youngest child, but I think that some of that separation, having to grow up without her dad, maybe put her in a position where she was identifying with this rich man whose best friend was his mother. And when she died, he was all alone out on the limb. Mm -hmm. Well, can we backtrack just a little bit? We've already killed him off in prison, but they had all this footage of him going in and out of court. And it was interesting. Mm -hmm watch his transformation from a fairly healthy man groomed well to a person who is getting wheeled in and out of the courtroom in a wheelchair for no reason that they have ever (laughs) 
And his hair is long. He looks like he's a Ted Kaczynski and he's living off in a bunker somewhere. What do you think that was about? It almost kind of reminded me of um, like when the Michael Jackson trial was going on and he would show up in his pajamas and yeah. You know, that whole thing. It's like he, it's like he opened the Sears catalog and he went to <laughs> for serial killers. Right. To me, it felt like watching his face as they were pushing him in and out with the wheelchair. It felt like the king, you know, like he really mm-hmm. did know and only had known privilege his whole life. Right. Like to be like, if I'm going to be forced to do this, I'm going to mm-hmm. Pushed in and out. I'm not. Right. Gonna- I'm gonna be as extra as possible. Mm-hmm. When reading up on it, it did outline the fact that when he was brought to court, the initial intent was to declare him you know, mentally incompetent. But then, through the course of the trial, of course, through the the events, they're able to determine that this was sort of motivated. You know, he he had a screw loose, and over time, nobody did anything about it. So, you know, he he was able to operate a gun and and whatever. But um, what that, about the power he still had while he was in prison? He somehow got it. A bunch of people hired to go out and paint all these buildings black. Right. That is. Mm-hmm. I mean. That's the the amount of money this guy just threw around. <laughs> pretty nauseating if you think about it. Right. And you have to wonder what became of the state cuz certainly if it was nowadays I would like to think that somebody who was in a position to do something might have tried to do good with it. Well, yeah. I did read um that after, you know, he died and uh, left about 80% of his fortune to Valentine and his family and, I don't know, other parts of Valentine's family. There was something weird going on there. I know he had some niece uh, niece and nephew that um, came to, you know, this uh, dispute it, um, and the nephew wanted to take that estate and restore it. I'm sure it's all hush-hush under the table sort of thing. So overall, did you feel that this documentary did a good job of telling the story of of the families and the the murder that took place? Yes, I I really enjoyed it. I I watched it twice and I enjoyed it just as much a second time. I, I have this analogy. When the original Shining was made, Stephen King hated it because in his story, they wanted to see the progression of the insanity and Jack Nicholson showed up on set and was crazy from the get-go, and he didn't like that. This is what I thought was good about this documentary, because you see him as just as a fairly normal, if not just isolated child, rowing in and watching the paranoia and all the problems and what the aftermath of a mental illness being left unchecked ultimately ended up being. So I did... I really did like it. I recommend it. It's uh, I'm very interested in studies of character, and if you if that's something you're interested in, I think you'll like this documentary. And Princess, what were your thoughts? I am a true crime uh, fanatic, and I love uh, to know kind of like the um, workings behind the madness, you know, before it gets to the crime. Um, so I just. You know, I think it was a really interesting documentary. What I really liked was that they had the interviews with the real people who were there. It wasn't just people telling you about, you know, what had happened. You could actually see the progression in, you know, the the home movies that were made at the time, compiled with the interviews from the people that were actually there and present during this time. You know, I found it to be just a really sad kind of story that, you know, is it just shows you money can get you a lot of things, but it doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, life's going to go hunky dory. And I think it just it just really spoke to how much people will are willing to tolerate and go through just to be kind of part of that in crowd. Um, so I think it's it's a really interesting story. It's a really interesting look into kind of this madness and insanity that went on during that time. So, well, I I felt that this movie did do this documentary did do a good job of uh, spelling things out for you. It certainly captured your attention, 
and I also watched it twice, and I found that the second time it actually went by much more quickly, but I also paid more attention to John Dupont because I wanted to see if the footage they were sharing with him kind of helped you to identify the the behavior and the mannerisms, the little clues that people who were around him in his day-to-day life should have picked up on to say something's wrong here, but they never did. So I, I enjoyed this because they used home movie footage from the families to illustrate the life of those athletes and their children as they, they moved into this farm, this compound. I would say that if you like stories of, of privilege and power gone wrong, this would definitely be something to look at. Be sure to catch Team Foxcatcher on Netflix. After seeing this film, I, like many, wanted to read more about the people that were involved and were affected by the murder. The wife, the widow of uh, Dave Schultz, was quite the strong person. And I was reading that after his death, It was about six months from when the Olympics were due to take place that year. And they were left with a team of athletes who needed to go through their day-to-day life, but needed to continue to train for this event that was part of their careers. And so she actually organized the training and made sure that that continued to happen for them so that the ball didn't get dropped. And in fact, she was able to make sure that the, the athletes that were involved in this team continued to get training for the next 10 years after the murder. Wow. wow. So you, you you know you have to say hats off to somebody that can not only uh, get through such a tragedy but to rise above it. Definitely. So, um, any other thoughts, folks? Okay, I just want to leave you with the notion that this guy was buried per his request in his sing his wrestling singlet. So that's it. That's disgusting. <laughs> just the thought of going up to a coffin and seeing this very old man in a wrestling singlet. And princess, princess, are you forming a thought? Are you there, Micah? Sorry, I had it on mute. Oh, okay. <laughs> I didn't realize that. Um, let's see, final thought, final thought. Um, I don't even know. Could have been a modern day. He could have been a, another Howard Hughes if he didn't have that gun, I feel like. Mm-hmm. Or if somebody had been just brave enough to step up and say, hey, Maybe we should take you to a doctor so all this money doesn't go to a waste. Brenda, you have been a pleasure as always. And uh, if our listeners aren't already familiar with your body of work, as it were, where can we find you? My body of work. (laughs) Um, Yeah, you can find us at lotzel.podbean.com or on iTunes. Also with Lotzel, L-O-T-S-L, iTunes. Shit in the name, so it's life on the shit list. Thank you for listening to The Far Away Nearby. This program can be found wherever you listen to podcasts. You can email us at tfnpodcast at gmail.com, tweet us on Twitter at tfndj, find our fan page on Facebook, and our companion blog on Tumblr or text or leave a message at 720-230-6919. Unified. Unique. Voices. Unified. Unique. Voices. A network of inclusion. Unifazpods.net.